16 verses long. And as we get there, I want to mention something that relates to uh, what and why John is writing. Not just this letter in 2 John, but we saw in 1 John that he is concerned with the false teaching of those who have left the church and are seeking to infiltrate the church with teaching that opposes the truth of who Christ is. In chapter 2 of 1 John, he mentions specifically those who fell away, who walked away, and says that they weren't really of us because if they had been of us, they would have stayed. And we can all, sadly, probably think of at least one person in our lives that we have known, maybe more, who we thought was saved. But then at some point, walked away. We've experienced that here in this church, and now the world is seeing it happen as a couple of men who have what we would refer to as a larger Christian platform have come out to say that they do not consider themselves Christians any longer. Joshua Harris, who is a pastor and author, and most recently Marty Sampson, who you may not recognize his name, but who's written uh, probably several of the songs that you have sung and love, both of them saying, I no longer believe. And these are sad stories, sad. And our hope and prayer should be that they return to the Lord they once proclaimed. For us, as followers of Jesus, when we see things like that, whether it's close to home or reading it online, how do we respond to these things? Especially when it hits so close to home. We can't flee. We must not flee. We must cling to what? What hope is there? The answer to that is the truth. Our hope is the truth. The truth that we embrace, the truth that we love, the truth that we live. That's how John begins this letter, with a focus on the truth that we love. 2 John verses 1 through 6, if you'll stand and follow along as I read. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. Not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. From God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is His commandment just as you have heard from the beginning so that you should walk in it. Let's pray.
Our Father, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, and your peace. All that come by way of Jesus. We praise you for your word and we ask you to help us today, Lord. Every single person here, Lord, I pray that you would help us to know the truth that is found in you, to embrace it, to trust it, to walk in its light. We thank you for these words. Thank you for all of your word, Lord. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. False doctrine, as we've seen from the beginning of studying 1 John, if you're a visitor with us, we're working our way verse by verse through 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, which are three separate letters that the Apostle John wrote. False doctrine or teaching that isn't truly biblical is serious, John is saying. He knows that and he continues to warn against it. So we see in verse 1, he begins this letter, the formal opening, but it's unusual how he starts the letter. He refers to himself first as the elder, meaning one who is, yes, older, but more importantly, one who is mature in the faith, one who has walked with the Lord one who has earned authority because of his experience, because of his character, because of his reputation. And then, after referring to himself as the elder, John refers to those that he writes to as the elect lady and her children. Now, you may read that and assume that this was a specific woman in the church that John is writing to and her literal children. But it's more likely that he's referring to a specific local church, referring to a community of believers chosen by God as his very own. And in addressing them this way, he's speaking of his love for them. We can assume that because of the end of the letter that he closes in verse 13, the children of your elect sister greet you. So he's he's writing to a church, and in verse 13, he's speaking of another church that's sending greeting to this church that he's writing to. He says he does this, he loves them in truth. That word truth, you, you noticed as we read through just those six verses, is used over and over throughout this short letter. John begins by saying he loves those who know the truth, and also that everyone who loves the truth loves those who love the truth. It's a part of who we are. As we get into this brief letter that's filled with the mentions of truth, we should ask, just as Pilate did, what is truth? What does John mean by truth? What does the Scripture mean when it speaks of truth? What is the truth? And we can answer that from the Scriptures. first place we could look is John 17, 17, where Jesus is praying. And in that text, He transitions to where He's praying for those who will come to know the Lord through Himself. 
which means us, all who will believe who come after him. And in the midst of praying for us, he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And so we know according to Jesus, God's word, all of it, is the truth. That shouldn't surprise us. God cannot lie, and He will not lie. And so all of His Word that He's given to us is true, and therefore the truth. And we can trust it as that. We also know that Jesus said to His disciples in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. So Jesus, who is God's Word in the flesh is truth. He is the truth. And the third text we could go to to help us to answer the question, what is truth, would be 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 3. It says this, Paul says there, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled. So the truth he's referring to in that section, by the open statement of the truth, is the gospel that they are proclaiming. So Paul says here that the gospel, the good news concerning Jesus, is the truth. It is truth. And now, here in 2 John, John is saying that these people know and have embraced the truth, the good news about Jesus that we find in His written Word. Paul writes to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10, that people perish because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. And John is saying that these people love the truth. They do love the truth. They've embraced the truth. That's how he's opening this letter. The elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. John expresses his love for them. And this love is grounded in the truth. Our hope in this life and for all of eternity is this truth. It's our only hope. And so we must ask as we get into this letter, do we believe the truth? Do we know the truth? Do we understand the truth? We believe the truth given to us in the Scripture concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. Verse 2 goes on, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. This truth, when embraced, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ and what He's done, when embraced, is in us and keeps us forever, holds us, protects us forever. In us and among us, he says. 
And as people who love the truth, we should therefore love those who also abide in that truth. As a people, there's this church that John is writing to, or we here in this body, we hold this truth in common. We embrace it together. We share a commitment to the gospel. And a shared commitment to the gospel produces love always. Truth is the basis for our unity together. We've said this so many times. As you consider the body of Christ, just, just even this local body, and to take each of us individually and kind of pull us apart and interview each individual person and the things that you're interested in, the things that you give yourselves to, the things that you spend your time doing, the differences in all of us would be pretty large, broad. Apart from Christ, most of us would not have that much in common simply because we're just humans. We have different interests. There's no criticism. It's just we're different people with different interests who love different things. And yet we have this in common. We embrace this together, the truth of the gospel. And what John is saying, because of that, we're united together and we have this truth in us pulling us together. And that should encourage us and inspire us all because what we see in the Scriptures is that true Christ-like love is not based on performance. It's not based on our abilities. It is always based on the truth of the Gospel. We love because of what He has done and who He is. Not what others can do for us. We'll see again that this is John's call for us, for all who are in Christ. Love and truth work together. Those who have committed themselves to the truth of the gospel will love others. He goes on, verse 3, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. From God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I love that. It doesn't say grace, mercy, and peace be with you or hopefully will be with you, but rather it will be with you. It's not a wish, it's a fact. In Christ, it's pronouncing a blessing on them and in it he reminds us of God's willingness to forgive sin. And we have in Christ a favorable relationship with God. We are no longer enemies because of Jesus. Grace. Grace describes all that God has done for us in Christ. It's God giving to us what we do not deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Unmerited favor and kindness toward us. We do not deserve His forgiveness. We don't deserve to be forgiven. We do not deserve to be counted as righteous, holy, and blameless. 
There's nothing we've done and nothing we could ever do to earn or deserve what He has done for us. It's grace. God is gracious. And it is grace that anyone is saved. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. It's God giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. Or specifically, God not doing to us what we do deserve. We actually do deserve judgment. We deserve to be separated from Him. If we doubt that, we push against that, we don't really understand who God is and what He's like. In Isaiah 6, we have this wonderful glimpse into heaven where Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. The train of His robe filled the temple, and His description is unimaginable. And as he describes God and the beings that surround him, they're calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And that word holy, we get used to singing and hearing, but it means set apart, other than us. He's completely other than you. He's completely other than me. He's set apart in all of his ways. He's perfect, righteous, And the reality is we are far, far, far from that. We know it. We know in our hearts that day in and day out we do the things that are not God, the things that He is other than us in, the things He's holy in, whether it's just in our thinking or our doing. And because of that, we really do deserve judgment. We deserve to be separated from Him, but He is merciful. Mercy is His compassion, His pity, His tenderness toward us. He does not treat us as we deserve. In Christ, He pardons our sin and welcomes us in. In Christ, our only hope is the truth of Christ And peace is the result of His grace and mercy. It's the state that we have with God and with others because of the application of God's grace and mercy toward us. It's personal wholeness and wellness. Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, since God has made us righteous, made us clean, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, all through Christ. And that's what John is saying here. These three, grace, mercy, and peace, will be with us. They flow to us from God the Father and Jesus Christ, His Son. Our hope for grace, our hope for mercy, our hope for peace can only be found in Jesus. And they come, he says, in truth and love. These two rails upon which God's grace, mercy, and peace are running. Truth and love. 
One commentator writes, to maintain a healthy and growing community, the church must exhibit a fidelity to the truth that knows no compromise, and they must love one another in a way that knows no boundaries. This connectedness of truth and love that we see here in this text is crucial for the body of Christ. We must cling to the truth, and we must love. It goes on in verse 4, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. John is thankful. He's encouraged. He's rejoicing. Why? Because he's seen some of these believers walking in the truth. They've, they've embraced the truth And he's seen them walking in it, living out the truth that they love. John wants us to know the truth. That's clear in his writings. But also to know that we ought to walk in light of the truth. That the truth, when embraced, should impact what we do. That we ought to live according to the truth. We might read this verse as if some were walking in the truth and some were not walking in the truth, but it's unlikely that's what he's saying here. It's likely that he's referring to some of the congregation that he has encountered. That he's saying, the ones of you that I have seen have been walking in truth. And I rejoice over that. He talks about the truth. He's focused on the gospel and the transformed life it makes possible. We have hope. We have hope of eternal life now. We can walk in the truth of what Christ has done and who He is now because of Him. That the truth does something. As we see later in this letter, he's concerned that there, there be a right understanding of specific things that we know the truth. He speaks of the incarnation, that we remain in the teachings of Christ, focuses on the truth of the gospel that extends grace, mercy, and peace to all who come by way of Jesus. He wants us to know those things, to know specific things, because there is truth. There's truth about Christ, and those things matter. And then, in light of what we know about who He is and what He's done for us, walk in that. Respond to it. What what does that look like for John? Well, we know the main way that that fleshes out. We see again in verse 5. I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. The primary manifestation of belief in Christ is love. That's what John writes. To walk in truth requires loving others. cannot think that we are walking in the truth if we are not loving one another. Right thinking, embracing the truth, leads to right living, which is loving. That we, we are a people who love one another. 
For John, right living is a life of love toward one another that is a response to the love that we experience in Christ. What does it look like for Christ's love to come to us? We know God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to make the first move. He shows His love in in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And our love ought to reflect the experience that we have in Christ. His grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. That is promise. We ought to reflect that to others. How does the truth of the gospel and all that we gain in Christ impact the way that you live? impact your relationship with those within the body of Christ. Consider that for a moment. How does the truth of the gospel and all that we gain in Christ impact your relationships with those within the body of Christ? John says that the impact should be one of obedience And love. Love. We ought to love one another. Again, just as in 1 John, he says, this is is nothing new that I'm giving to you. This is what you've known from the very beginning. Jesus says, this is how they'll know that you are my disciples. This is how people will look and see that person is a follower of Jesus by how you love one another. John says again, this is not new. This is nothing new that you should have to be taught again. This is a response to the love that we receive in Christ. He goes on in verse 6, and this is love. That we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? What did he say? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the commandment John is saying. Love. Our love should be shaped and informed by the commands of God. To love one another is to do what God commands us to do. John says that we're to demonstrate our love for God by loving one another and by walking according to His commands. Again, just just as in 1 John, he reminds them, "This this isn't something you know. You know this. Grow in love. Loving others, loving those within the body of Christ is central to the gospel. Genuine love for truth always results in love for others who also love the truth. When we love the truth of the gospel and we see other people loving the truth of the gospel, we love them. That's what John is saying. And that love should lead us to rejoice greatly when we see it in other believers. 
We should be joyful, loving people. It shows that we are in Christ. They'll know you're my disciples by how you love one another. Daniel Aiken on verse 6 writes this, Walk in the command of love and love the commands in which you walk. Right belief works itself out in right living. Paul writes to the Philippians in Philippians 1 verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I know we visit this a lot. We come back to this text a lot. I come back to this text a lot. But it's, it's such a crucial truth for us. We see exactly what John is saying in these verses in, in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians, Paul carefully and graciously works through what it means for us to be united in Christ. If we believe and we're saved, he goes through and, and, and lovingly shows us and tells us what that means, what our identity now is in Christ. We are, Paul says, holy and blameless. He says, in Christ we have the Holy Spirit. He tells us that we are loved He says that we are adopted by God. We are forgiven. Paul says in Christ we are redeemed. He tells us that His grace is lavished on us. Paul's careful to explain that all of this, all of this blessing that is ours in Christ was granted to us. It is grace. It was freely given. It says that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit when we heard and believed the gospel message and that we were made alive in Christ, not at all by works we have done, but by grace. We're saved by grace. That there was and is nothing we could have done or ever could do to earn or deserve what God has given us freely in Christ. And the benefits of that grace are wonderful and eternal, he tells us. In Ephesians 3, he tells us that some of the benefits that are ours in Christ are that we are united together as the body that the walls that divided us have been broken down in Christ, that we can love one another based on Christ's love and work on our behalf. And so for these three chapters, Paul over and over lovingly shows us this is who you are now. This is the truth of your identity in Christ. That all of that is truth. The truth that John speaks of here in 2 John is all a part of the truth. And then Paul continues in Ephesians 4 through 6, and he begins chapter 4 with, Therefore, in light of all of the truth of who you are in Christ, 
Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In light of what Christ has made you to be, in light of His grace, mercy, and peace that is yours, in light of His forgiveness and His redemption, the fact that Christ is the propitiation of your sins, that He has satisfied God's wrath for your sins, in light of your position in Christ, start living like it. Respond in the way that you walk. The truth embraced changes us and results in love for one another. Paul's saying to them in Ephesians and to us, this is what Christ has done for you and in you and to you. Now start acting like that. Start becoming in practice what you already are in position. Your position in Christ is eternally secure. It will never change. That is wonderful grace. If you believe that, Paul's saying, walk in that. And that's what John is saying here as well. If you embrace the truth, then walk in the truth. And let that truth flow from you in love toward others. One of the things that I like to do as we are going through a a new letter, as we begin studying through a new epistle or letter, is at some point in the sermon to read through the entire text. Now, this, this text is very short. Some are longer. So we only have 13 verses. But the reason, the reason I do this is because we depend on God's Word, not my Word. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of Christ. My explanation of that Word is nothing. God's Word is everything. And so I want to read through the text and let his word speak even as we begin and before we transition into taking the Lord's Supper. But he begins in verse 1, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace. Mercy and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him 
takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. We're going to move into a time where we take the Lord's Supper together. The reflection of our love for one another comes through the Lord's Supper. Paul writes a lengthy section in 1 Corinthians 11 concerning this. A true participation with Christ in the Lord's Supper should count others as more significant than yourself. That's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 11. I want to read that to you. You're welcome to turn there and follow along. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning with verse 17. In the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now, it's remarkable. Paul is saying here, there is a way to come together and even do something like taking the Lord's Supper in a way that is for the worse. It's not for the better but for the worse that you come together, he says. That's incredibly important to us because what it says to us is this act of taking the bread and taking the cup are connected to Christ. And if we are not putting others before ourselves, if we're not loving others, and that's the issue that he's addressing here, we're not putting others before themselves, they're putting themselves before the rest of the body. If our hearts are not connected to Christ in that, then it's, it's worthless. We're not doing this in a worthy manner. We're doing this in an unworthy manner. That there's actually a way to come together and take the bread and the cup that is for the better. And that is considering the gospel, considering what Christ did. Philippians 2 says, He made Himself nothing and came to us. Paul goes on to describe what it ought to look like in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. A a way of taking the Lord's supper that is for the better and not for the worse is remembering the truth of the gospel. That Christ made himself nothing. That his body was broken. His blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And our lives should reflect that kind of humility and love. And so even as we hold the bread and hold the cup, let's prepare our hearts that way. Do we truly love? Do we count others as more significant than ourselves? Are we more a reflection of the church in Corinth 
And we just take this in a manner that is for the worse. Let's pray otherwise. Let's seek the Lord that it would be otherwise, that we would truly love in light of the truth that we have in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. You're good, and what you do is good, Lord. And we praise you for it. We ask you and plead with you to help us to remember rightly. Jesus, you came willingly. God, you show your love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus, you came willingly for the joy set before you. You endured the cross, suffering for our sake. And so as we hold this bread and we hold the cup, we ask that you would help us to remember rightly. We are nothing apart from the grace and mercy of you, Lord. We are nothing. We are unworthy, and yet you've given us what we don't deserve, and you have withheld from us what we do deserve. You're so merciful. And so we pray that with joy we could take the bread and take the cup, remembering rightly the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.